0: with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 today. Let's go ahead and begin uh, with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. Thank you that you hold us fast. Uh, we confess that we are not able to keep our hold on you But we are uh, in need of you keeping your hold on us. And in your kindness, you have promised to do that. So we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this time. Pray that you might help us to submit ourselves to the scripture. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You are an overcomer. It's a popular message today that does have some truth in it. You can find overcomer messages all over the internet. They're a dime a dozen. You can learn how to overcome all the haters. You can learn how to overcome discouragement, or you can learn how to overcome the obstacles that you face that prevent you from following your dreams. Overcomer messages sell. Unfortunately, much of, not all, but much of what you find out there is simply recycled and repackaged narcissism. There are uh, secular strategies uh, to make everything go the way that you want it to go in your life. And so many times when you hear an overcomer message, it is simply that. How can I get my life to go the way that I want my life to go. The truth is that we are, as believers in Christ, overcomers. This is true. This is what the passage tells us today in 1 John 5. We have in the words of the passage uh, that Christians have overcome the world. What does this overcoming look like Um, If it doesn't look like promotions and raises and fulfilling your dreams and vacation homes and defeating the haters and new cars, then what does it look like? We want to look at this in the passage in front of us today. Uh, But just for starters here, look at the Apostle John, the author of this letter. We know that he was exiled to the island Patmos. And so whatever overcoming looks like for John... It certainly must be compatible with exile, with humiliation, and with suffering for the sake of Christ and the church. But there is, for John, a certain order of things, as it were. John is, for all of the, the going in circles that he does in 1 John, back to a topic again and again, for all of that, he is a very structured and orderly person. He wants to make sure that we understand things. And I do have, by the way, a handout um, that tries to capture some of those things uh, in the passage today. And so let's take a look at this. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? For some time we have been building up to this verse uh, you may recall that we have been talking about the importance of John's six has been born passages in this letter. In fact, that's on the back of the handout uh, today. Is these uh, the, these has been born uh, passages John uses the word born in what we refer to as the perfect tense in the Greek which essentially means past tense, uh, past tense with continual results into the present. And in every one of these verses, John has the perfect tense born, which is translated into English, has been born, coupled with a present tense verb or participle. Cutting to the chase, because we have gone through this a little bit before, and you do see it on your handout. What John is saying, essentially, is that the new birth comes before, logically, comes logically before these six things, okay? These six things uh, require the new birth to come first. The new birth comes before righteous behavior, It comes before victory over sin, it comes before genuine love, it it comes before faith in Christ, and it comes before Christian victory. It is pretty straightforward, and I'm going to put up on the screen here, these six verses and highlight the relevant sections, okay? And and you should see what, what John is getting at. Everyone who practices righteousness, present tense, has been born of him, perfect tense, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Whoever loves has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. John's intention here is unmistakable. The new birth, being born again, comes before All of these things, one might look at it this way. We might be able to identify these six things as signs of the new birth. How do I know that I've been born again? Well, are you practicing righteousness? So on and so forth. Righteousness is a sign of the new birth. Victory over sin is a sign of the new birth. Genuine love is a sign of the new birth. Faith in Christ is a sign of the new birth. Christian victory is a sign of the new birth. Now, specifically in our passage today, we are looking at the fact that faith is a sign of the new birth. 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes, by the way, just so this is clear, you're familiar with the fact that the word believe in Greek and the word faith in Greek are essentially the same word. They're cognates. One is the verb form and one is the noun form. Okay? So we could say everyone who believes or everyone who has faith that Jesus is the Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, present tense, everyone who is believing... Are you believing that jesus is the christ are you believing this okay then you have been born of god and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him on this verse i'm just going to give you a few uh quotations here that may be helpful to kind of uh get our bearings macarthur says this faith is the result of the new birth not its cause you see that here uh, he's commenting on this verse. Uh, Marshall says faith is thus a sign of the new birth, just as love and as doing what is right are also indications that a person has been born of God. Okay? Boyce says this We believe and, in fact, do everything else as of a spiritual nature precisely because we have first been made. Alive, the new birth comes first. Dabney says, all who believe are already born of God. Tim Challies has a very helpful um, graphic. Uh, He likes to do these graphics. He actually has, uh, I think it's called Visual Theology, a book full of these kinds of graphics. I don't know if this is big enough to see up there, but this is his graphic on the order of salvation. By the way, this goes from the bottom up, So it starts with election at the bottom. Uh, This is uh, what theologians refer to as the order of salvation. Uh, And essentially you have election, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. By the way, does anyone know where faith is in this order? Anyone know? Not calling. Conversion, okay? So conversion... Uh, those are the twin um, uh, aspects of faith and repentance, okay? So faith and repentance is what's referred to as conversion, okay? Now, why is this important? Some may think that perhaps we're squabbling over details here, like how many angels could dance on the head of a pin, right? Is it this? Is it that? What's so important about all of this? Uh, Perhaps, maybe. But I would suggest to us that in this passage in front of us, there is something immensely encouraging to the believer's soul, and that is the fact that God has provided us with yet another test of our salvation. Right here. Now, remember what we've been saying John is doing with the tests of salvation. He's doing this in order to increase our what? Our joy. Remember, that's one of the purposes of the letter of 1 John, to increase our joy. And so Christians who are confident of their standing before the Lord are joyful people. I mean, that's pretty intuitive, right? If you're fearful about where you're going to be for all of eternity, you're probably not going to live a very joyful life here, okay? But if you're confident in your faith, then you can have joy. So let's ask the question this way. How do I know that I'm born again? What does the text say i know that i'm born again because i'm believing in jesus right now that's an evidence of the new birth past redemption or past regeneration results in present belief your faith in jesus christ today your belief today is evidence of your regeneration yesterday of the new birth yesterday okay let's say it a different way are you believing then you're born again there's evidence here of the new birth many Christians today imagine that their faith gives them life very popular view the Bible never teaches this The Bible teaches that faith grants justification, right? Justification by faith alone. But it teaches that life gives faith. Very different, okay? So we might ask the question this way. What comes first, faith or life? What does 1 John 5, 1 say? Life, the new birth. That comes first first. So first comes the new birth or the new life, and then comes the faith, then, and then after that comes the justification. If you are believing in Jesus, in other words, you are born again. That's the gist of, of the passage. And this is something that you as a Christian can anchor yourself to. This is part of the, the joy that John is trying to produce in this letter, is he's saying, you're wrestling through, am I born again, am I not? Am I, am, am, I, am I a Christian or not? Well, what do you have to do? Am I believing in Jesus Christ? Well, there's confidence right there. There's a sign of the new birth right there. There's hope there. And then there's joy because there's stability that comes. There's, there's, there's an incredible amount of encouragement that comes to the believer through that. Now, just as quickly as he got on this topic, John leaves it now. And this is what he does. And then he's gonna come back to it a little bit later talking about the new birth and the implications of it later on in this, in this uh, passage. But in the second half of verse 1, we read this. So we see, everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ has been born of God, past tense, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. This is, of course, another piece of evidence, another truth that bolsters your assurance of faith, and therefore increases your joy right? We understand this intuitively, okay? If you are a child living in uh, your parents' home, and you are unsure of whether your parents love you or not, okay, you're probably not going to live out your days in joy and happiness, right? But if you are a child, and you are firmly secure in the fact that your parents care for and love you, There's a lot of joy that comes from that. And that's what we're saying here, is that when there is a certain kind of stability from an assurance of salvation, then I can have joy as a believer. And this is what I want for all of us here as believers in Christ, is to have this uh, stability and this, uh, this joy that comes from knowing the Lord. This evidence that he gives here in the second half of verse one, is this, if you love God, you will love who? Christians, other, other believers, everyone who has been born of him, right? Uh, one translation actually paraphrases this and says everyone who loves the parent loves the child. And we've seen this before because again, John has come back to this again and again and again and again. And the truth that he teaches here is that true Christians will love other believers. Barnard ran an article back in 2017 entitled, Meet Those Who Love Jesus But Not the Church. Okay? And I'm going to put this chart up here for you that they produced. They polled American Christians uh, to find out that there is an, an increasing portion of professing Christians today who claim to be very religious but don't attend church. Okay? I don't know what it is with the women here at 61%, but that's just their polls, okay? Uh, but it's just a growing, a growing percentage, okay? A growing percentage of people are saying, I'm very spiritual, I'm very religious, I love God, I love the Bible, uh, but I just don't attend church, okay? <clears throat> Those people who claim to love God, but do not love God's people are displaying evidence that they're not truly converted. But John says, if you love God, you will love his people. That's like a foundational thing here. And if you are not loving God's people, then you are supposed to not have assurance of your salvation and your faith. That's a a simple reality. This is a growing part of the population in our country. All the way back in 1 John 2 and verse 19, John has been saying this again and again and again. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. True Christians will persevere and they will persevere in Christian fellowship. This is foundational here. The point is that if you claim to be religious, but you do not love the church, and you don't love fellow Christians, then you are giving evidence that your confession is not genuine, and that you are not really a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly enough, what John does here is he now takes this reality and he reverses it. How do you know that you love God? You love God's people. How do you know you love God's people? You love God. He he just totally flips that uh, in verse two, because he says, by this, we know that we love the children of God. How? How do we know we love the children of God? When we love God and obey his commandments. So in verse 1, he says, you can tell if someone loves the Father by if he loves Christians. In verse 2, you can tell someone loves Christians by if they love the Father. And then he adds one more statement, and obey his commandments. Now here it is, plain as day. I cannot soften this. I will not soften this. I cannot remove this. This is here to remain for all ages. We are under obligation as Christians to obey God. This does not bode very well with 21st century American Christian antinomianism, which is completely pervasive in the church today. I mean, we have somehow adopted a mindset that because Christ died for us, we can literally do whatever we want to do now. Well, the gospel covers that. Well, the gospel covers that. Well, the gospel covers that. We cannot have such a careless attitude towards obedience to God. He, he, never, he never said, now that I've died for you people, you can just sin all you want to. I and mean, if you want to show me that verse in the Bible, I, it's just not there. But, note, but, but here's what I want to notice about this verse in particular. There's a little bit of a twist in this verse. Normally, he says what? Obedience is evidence that you love Who? God. That's what he normally says, that that obeying God's commandments, that that is evidence that you love God. That is not what he says in this verse. Obedience is evidence that you love who in this verse? Other Christians. Yeah. Do, Do you see that? By this... We know that we love who? The children of God when we obey his commandments. Okay? This is an important nuance that he's introducing to us here, okay? How, how do you show your love for the Christian sitting next to you in here? By obeying God. It's a little bit of a different twist on this. We might say it this way. Commandment keeping blesses your neighbor. We have obligations to God and to others. You show love the, to the person who is sitting next to you. Okay? You are The person who's sitting next to you, let's just pick for the sake of this illustration here, pick the person sitting next to you who's not in your household, okay? That person who's sitting next to you, you know how you can be a blessing to that person? By not looking at pornography this week. By disciplining your children this week. By not falling into unrighteous anger this week. By being faithful in your marriage this week. This seems a little bit forced and and unrelated, and yet it's right here in front of our eyes. By obeying God's word, you are blessing the person next to you, even if there's not a direct, immediate connection there. Let me illustrate it this way imagine that you have ascended the ranks to the elite Navy SEALs, okay? And imagine that you are lazy and undisciplined. Bear with me, because I know they would kick you out, okay? But let's just say that for whatever reason, you're not kicked out, okay? And you're lazy and you're undisciplined and you're not, doing, you're not working out like you're supposed to and your body's not in the shape that it's supposed to be in and all this kind of thing, and you are now on a mission with your team, okay? Are you an asset or a liability to them? You're a liability to them. Um, You cannot help them when they need help. You drag them down, okay? In the same way, when you are disobeying God's commandments, even in your private life behind closed doors, that has a very real, tangible effect on your fellow brothers and sisters who sit here. You cannot sin in isolation. You cannot go close a door in your house and sin, and it has zero effects on the people sitting out here today. It has effects. There's very real effects. For one, you can't help them when they need help. That's one reason. You can't help someone else conquer lust if you are looking at porn. Therefore, obedience to God's commandments blesses your neighbor. For another, you can't bless the church through your gifts when you can't even get your own act together. How are you going to teach someone on a wise use of stewardship and biblical finances when your own financial life is a train wreck? There's there's connections here. How can you help a drowning man if you cannot swim? Jeremiah 12.5, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? (laughs) In other words, if you can't get your own household in, or if you can't just get the simple things right in obeying where God has called you to obey, how are you going to be a blessing to anyone outside of your household? Therefore, obedience to God's commandments blesses your neighbor And in case you're tempted to discredit the importance of obedience, John is waiting with a ready answer in hand. And he simply says in verse three, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. He equates love with commandment keeping. He says, this is the love of God. What is the love of God that we keep his commandments? Earlier in the letter, he said, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in deed and truth. Today, we might say, let us not love like a Hallmark movie, but let us love in commitment and obligation and faithfulness and duty and perseverance. And I really do want to drill this point home here. Shame on anyone who has made the claim that the gospel makes obedience irrelevant. Shame on any person who has ever made that claim. John fourteen fifteen. if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is, that is an anchor to just firmly plant into the ground that this is what Jesus Christ calls me to do which should make sense. Children evidence love for their parents in that they obey them, right? How can a child show that I love you, mom and dad? Well, it's through obedience, okay? And even parents do a a, a sense of this towards their own children. I mean, Matthew 7, 9 through 10, uh, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a, a serpent? I mean, Love acts. Love does things tangibly. And that is something that we have lost today. I've been doing some reading on fathers and fatherhood throughout uh, history. And uh, I came across this week a rather fascinating description of a uh, 19th century Victorian family. Okay? And for whatever kinds of criticism you may wish to throw their way, They were an incredibly stable and durable family unit, especially compared to today's disposable family standards. I mean, we have, our family units today are shambles, okay? I mean, it is just throw away. One of the reasons for the stability that they enjoyed in their families was because they valued, as one author says, commitment, obligation, social responsibility, and spousal obligation. In other words, they understood rightly that to be a father or a mother or a child came with certain duties, certain responsibilities, and certain commitments. These responsibilities to the 19th century mind we're more than mere recommendations, but absolute necessities, okay? You get married, and you are obligated and committed for life. No questions asked. You do whatever you have to do to make this work and to commit to this. It's not the mindset today. The mindset today is, you know, if, if I'm not happy with you tomorrow, then we'll just go our own ways kind of thing. What we need to recover then, and what I think this passage is teaching us, is the Christian's obligation to duty. Duty is not a dirty word. Duty is not a dusty relic of a bygone era that needs to just remain in the past. Duty is essential to the very fabric of what it means to be a Christian. Duty can be lifeless and dry. Yes, I understand that. And we oftentimes react against that. Well, that, but we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because some people exercise lifeless, dry duty does not mean that duty is therefore discredited or disqualified or insufficient. Uh, duty does not have to be this way. And ironically enough, what John does in the passage is he takes duty, and he takes love and he brings them together and say these coexist in happy harmony if you love me obey my commands see the connection that exists here you need to gain the victory over your passions over your desires over your lusts your sin and do what needs to be done your father Provide for your family, love your wife, wrestle with your children. Do these things because you love God and you love people. Stop buying the lie of the world that all we need to do is what makes us happy in this immediate moment. All that produces is a society of porn-addicted, drug-dependent leeches, and I'm serious about that. Our society is completely falling apart because no one cares about the obligations that we have to one another anymore. It is what makes me happy in this immediate moment. And that's all I care about. And by the way, this is not a let's look outside at how horrible all those people are out there message, okay? This is a let's open up the cobweb filled closets inside of our own hearts kind of a message, okay? Don't despise duty. Embrace it. Another way to say this, not to despise duty, is this. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. (laughs) He brings them, he marries them together. For a true Christian, this is not drudgery. Psalm 119, verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I, I win the lottery. I, I, oh, all oh, the joy that this brings me. Okay, whatever. I delight in your testimonies the way that I would delight in all riches. 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 97, oh, how I love your. Law verse 103 How sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth And because of the delight that the Christian has for the laws of God they are therefore not burdensome to him verse 3 of 1 John 5 and his commandments are not burdensome This is a little bit of an interesting verse here because um There is a sense in which his commandments are burdensome. After all, we need Christ to redeem us because we can't do this in our own strength. And yet, there's another sense in which his commandments are not burdensome. God is a kind God, he is not um, uh, a wicked um, ruler who uh, piles all of these uh, things on top of his people. He is a kind God. And his commandments are not burdensome. Partly they're not burdensome because the Christian delights in them. Okay. And partly because he's been born again, as the text has already told us. You remember Jesus says this in Matthew 11:30 My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, in light of this, in light of all of this, through this, then the Christian overcomes the world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Christians are overcomers. Amen, right? Yeah, okay. Christians are overcomers. But they are overcomers in light of their status as born-again people. That's How do you become an overcomer? Well, it's through being born again. So, so the source is God. Uh, and that's the first thing to note here, is that being an overcomer is, is that we are not overcomers in our own strength. John 16, 33. Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. So this is source in, in Christ, who is the one who overcame the world. But the next thing to understand, we want to ask in the form of a question, what exactly is it that I'm overcoming? And this is where I think we can get a little bit, we can massage this, right? We're an overcomer. I got a raise. Overcomer, I got a brand new car. Trample over the haters and go fulfill your dreams. Maybe it's a horrible dream that you shouldn't have. I don't know. Is that a consideration? Maybe. Um, There's just a sense in which we need to be cautious to understand that overcoming is not fill in the blank with whatever I want. Okay, it's just a very kind of subtle thing, important thing. So what exactly are we talking about here? These modern ways of understanding Christian overcoming the world doesn't square with the massive amount of suffering that the church has endured for 2,000 years. We cannot suddenly come on the scene in 21st century America and reinterpret everything to fit our own agenda. It has to be compatible. They, Christians, in light of the new birth, are overcomers. Paul was an overcomer. He died... Like martyrs are overcomers. They die. Like this has to fit somehow together. What I think he's referring to is what he already told us in chapter two. Christians overcome the world. Well, what's the world? What's in the world? Well, what did he do? He told us, right? First John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world what? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In other words, those who conquer the those who conquer the world are conquering the first John two things. Those who gain the victory over the world. Those who conquer the world or those who have victory over the world or those who overcome the world are not ensnared by the world, okay? One commentator says this, those who have been born of God have overcome the worldly tendency to satisfy their own sinful cravings. This connects this passage directly with 1 John 2, the, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, okay? All that's from the world. If you're an overcomer, then you Uh, have overcome that tendency to satisfy those cravings. Barnes says this, it is one of the settled maxims of religion that every man who is a true Christian gains a victory over the world and consequently a maxim has settled that where the spirit of the world reigns supremely in the heart there is no true religion. In other words he's saying if the spirit of the world reigns in your heart as king then you're not truly converted. If you are driven by the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, then you have not overcome the world and you are evidencing that you are an unbeliever. The book on manhood that we studied as men recently said that there are three ways that evil patriarchy seeks to overpower men today. The first is that it tries to harness them to get you on their side. And the second is to pacify them. And on this second point, this author said this, in our day, the technique of of pacifying men has been perfected with porn and to a lesser extent, video games. Men who are hooked up like junkies to the dopamine drip of virtual fornication and fake dominion are worthless for the task of being fruitful in real life and imposing genuine order on their worlds. You know, self-control used to be a virtue. Like it used to be something that was celebrated and encouraged. And self-control is not a virtue anymore. I mean, what's the virtue now? It is given to every immediate impulse that your body tells you with no questions and no qualifications. The world is designed to create that and foster that in us. If you have no self-control in your life, then the world has overpowered and overcome you. You have not overpowered and overcome the world. You are a little slave that obeys immediate impulses. And I long for a generation of men and women who will take an axe to the root of the sins of their heart and gain the victory over those things. Instead of coddling our sin in the name of sensitivity, and love, and tolerance. Like David, holding up the severed head of Goliath, we need to hold up the severed heads of our lusts and our passions, crucify our sins, and wage war on them, and tolerate them no more. That's what overcoming is. But that doesn't sell. Books about getting your best life now sell, those sell a lot of copies. But books about slaying dragons and severing heads is something that we categorize with a culture a little more barbaric than our own. And yet this is a duty that we are called to do, is to go to war with the sin that resides in our own hearts. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It either means what it says it means, or it doesn't. There's no post obedience Christianity in Scripture. Doesn't exist. Can't create that world for us. Now, what is this accomplished through? It's accomplished through our faith, right? What is it that overcomes the world? Our faith. Well. Well, this is where he's come full circle because go all the way back to verse one. Where did the faith come from or the belief? From the new birth, right? So where does victory come from? It comes from God. All of it goes back to the fountainhead, the Lord himself. So where do we go from here? Well, I just have a couple of points of application. Number one, look for evidence of the new birth in your faith. My trust trusting in Christ? In your love for God, do I love God? In your love for the brethren, do I love Christians? And your obedience to God. And this, is, this is what this passage calls us to very directly. How do I know I'm born again? Are you believing in Christ? Are you loving God? Are you loving fellow Christians? Are you obeying God's commandments? These are evidences of the new birth. And this is the order that John has put these things in to help encourage us and give us joy. Number two, wage war on your sins. Enlist the help of the church. Slay dragons. Overcome the world through faith in Christ. I mean, just stop coddling these things and just kill the sins and the passions. You'll do that if you love Christ. You'll set yourself to that task if you, do, if, you, if you love Christ. Obviously, you won't do it in your own strength. You'll need his help to do this. And you'll do it as he's prescribed, but do it nonetheless, we must. We must. Number three, if you see no evidence of the new birth, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. I don't know where you are, but, but perhaps maybe this is, is you. And so the call for you is to believe on Jesus Christ. And then, of course, just do all things through and for Christ. We are not saying, this is not a lift yourself up by your bootstraps message. Um, uh, In fact, those are not good messages. Uh, We can't lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. This is a rely on the means of grace that Christ has provided us to accomplish these things. But it also is get up and accomplish these things for the sake of, uh, of the Lord. Thank you, God, for today. And this passage, thank you for the new birth and the fact that you have been kind enough to give new life to your people. We pray that you'd encourage us to find hope in uh, the assurance of our faith and our salvation. If there be any who's doubting that today, I pray that you might encourage them and point them to the hope uh, that exists in the gospel. We know that you save souls. The gospel still works, that you are kind and generous enough to forgive us all of our sins. And even the ways that we've talked about today that we may fail and we may sin against you, those things are included in the things that you will forgive us for. And so we thank you for that and pray that you drive us ultimately to Christ in his name. Amen.